Welcome to Content Pros Podcast, where we unlock the strategies and secrets of the best content marketers in the world and ask the questions you've always wanted asked. Content Pros is sponsored by Sixter, allowing marketers to automatically inject clickable images called campaigns into every one of their employee email signatures to promote their company's most important initiatives or content. Now, here are your hosts from Oracle Marketing Cloud, Chris Moody, and from Uberflip, Randy Frisch. Ready? Let's talk to the pros. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Content Pros Podcast. Really excited. We're joined today by Ron Tyson. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks so much for making that intro. Ron, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, for those who don't know Ron, and you know, we try and always be very transparent with our with our content pros listener listener base, um, you know, we all think that there's this magical room that all podcasters get into. We do a lot of this remotely, but Ron and I are actually about three blocks down the street from us, <laughs> from each other right now. Uh, Ron heads up the Tight Group, um, which is based here in Toronto, where I'm headquartered as well. And uh, Ron, thanks so much for for joining us. Maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about what the tight group is and also a little bit about what you do uh, on a day-to-day beyond working with a client base there. Sure. Thanks. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, uh, we are in the mecca of uh, content in Toronto and Liberty Village. Uh, so the, the tight group is a content marketing agency. And, you know, I guess we, if you were to summarize what we do, we like to say we we create and produce content that people want to see opposed to that they have to see, um, which would be traditional advertising. And so we're, you know, the content agency record for Microsoft and for Johnson and Johnson and AB World Foods and, and other people. And we're about uh, 25 people uh, here in Liberty Village. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, we come from a variety of different backgrounds from traditional advertising and digital advertising and custom publishing. And so it's a great collection of, of uh, people with unique skill sets and perspectives to this, you know, ever-changing content equation. Now, in terms of what I do on a daily basis, you know, I, I, I try and worry about tomorrow. So, you know, our team here worries about today, and I try and worry about tomorrow. So that really looks at, um, you know, kind of deals with, one, where content is going, and um, try and forecasting where the content world is going and where clients are going with that content and what the revenue models are and, and, and consumer media habits and those sorts of things. So there's kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a thought leadership forecast, but then there's also a biz dev part of tomorrow, which is, you know, who are the types of people that we want to work with and how do we go about making those connections? And I kind of combined those two. Uh, I'm on the road a heck of a lot. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to about 65 keynotes a year. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time outside of the office uh, trying to accomplish that. Well, Ron, I think you set yourself up for the million-dollar question, which we wouldn't start with. Gemini, 1970. (laughs) Since you said it, you know, you're focused on the future. So where is content marketing going? What are you seeing? Well, you know, I think I've been working on something lately called the content spectrum. And uh, I think the, you know, we used to have these worlds of church and state. Right when it was, there was pure play content, which was TV networks and publishing and you know um, uh, magazines, you know just the, those 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 that world 
of pure play content. And then there was advertising that supported all that content. But it was really church and state. Those two ecosystems didn't cross over. They, um, they, you know, while advertising funded content, uh, it was it was two different groups of people that worked in both of those industries. And then content marketing came in and basically, I think, looked at the the low cost of production, the massive distribution that was available to brands, and they said, hey, you can compete with those pure play content providers by providing niche content aimed specifically at your user base that drove people down a sales funnel. Now, I think what's happening is church and state, they're dead. That separation between church and state is completely dead because the traditional publishers and broadcasters, because they've been losing money over time, have now been forced to do other things. So, you know, you'll hear the big world, the big word of convergence. And so that means that, you know, somebody like Rogers in, in Canada, which owns the Toronto Blue Jays and also owns the sports broadcast network and also owns magazines, uh, you know, the if they run a commercial that airs in their sports uh, newscast that kind of drive that talks about the Blue Jays, well, is that an ad? that's pushing people to go watch a Blue Jays game because that's where they get incremental revenue and that's where they're actually making their money. And so the broadcast is a lost leader or the broadcast is a content marketing vehicle for the lead, the, the live event. And is that where they're making their money? And what's the difference between that and them cutting to a commercial for Johnson & Johnson? There's no difference. So we're in both cases, we're pulling away, we're using the content to sell another product. In one case, that broadcaster happens to own that other product. And so I think we've seen a, a decrease in that editorial integrity that the, the publishers and the broadcasters used to hold up as their unique point of difference. And now they're driving revenue in other places just as much as brands are. So everything now is content marketing. Everything is driving users to someplace else where somebody is going to make money. And so brands have to realize that, that, um, and consumers have to realize that, that editorial integrity is, is out the window. Uh, and, uh, and everyone's driving, uh, to a, a business model, if you will. That's interesting. You know, I was I was recently at an event where I was speaking for the day, and it was it was more uh, as you're describing, kind of the the traditional media buying um, groups who are focused with how do we get this new age content out there. And there was a term that I had never really heard of before, to be honest. It's this concept of OTT. I don't know if you you you're familiar with that term. But, no, but I'm I'm anxious. Yeah, to it, was, it was the idea of I I think it stands for over the top content which oh, is yes. the idea of overlaying content in front of traditional content that we may have thought of. So, um, you know, one of the most obvious examples that I think us as content marketers think about is like a pre-roll video in front of YouTube or, you know, down the line as we start to engage in perhaps more content on, uh, on our new Apple TVs, the opportunity to have over-the-top content that's put on top of, of that content. Um, and I'm probably butchering the, the true definition of what it is, but it was an interesting way to start thinking about, as you said it, where we think about placing the content marketing that we've thought of and the new channels that kind of you know, are out there. What, what's your kind of view on, on the 
perhaps more ignored channels that some marketers are, are, are overlooking today? Well, I think um, there's still this weird, you know, there's clients who get it, that they get that, they're, that they can become a publisher or a broadcaster. Um, but the entire ecosystem is still set up with media agencies that control budgets uh, and the lion's share of a budget. And so you can go to a client and go, you can create your own podcast. And they'd go, awesome, here's $800, go at, you know, go at it. Um, or you could say, there's an amazing podcast that currently exists out there. Why don't you sponsor for 20 grand? And they go, oh, yeah, we get that. We understand that notion, as does our media agency, because it's really easy to go, oh, we're going to take 20 grand and just check this box and send somebody a check. So the, the place that people are overlooking is, is that they, we really want to own our owned audience, and, and they're still renting. Still, it's always better to own than to rent, but brands are still renting other content, and uh, I, I think it's um, it, it's more operational than anything. That that's the issue. So I think one that's pretty scary that it's still always renting your own content, and you know, it brings me back to the hub and spoke model that people have been talking about for what 10, 15 years now, <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> it sounds like a lot of people still aren't embracing that. So. You know, I'm always curious across a, a breadth of clients as a content marketing agency, what are some of the commonalities for success or, or maybe what are the recommendations you're making on the general, you know, scope to say, here's what you can do. Granted that every single company is different. You represent lots of companies. Yeah. You know, we understand that um, to go into a client and say, hey, you can, there's no reason why you can't shoot your own web show. Um but that's a massive step in a completely different direction for the way the entire ecosystem is designed. It's not, it's not designed to support that. I mean, try putting in community management. You know, like that's a completely different job and you're talking content distribution and you're talking different metrics and you're talking different process. And so it's really, really difficult to sell stuff through. Um, what we try to do is, you know, obviously we go in with a content strategy and um, we know that not all of it is going to get executed, but every single day we try and take just one more step towards the holy grail, you know? So let's just make it better today. Uh, you know, I had a great time to, uh, uh, opportunity to interview Jack Welch last year um, for the Art of Management and, you know, talking about innovation. And he just said, you know, enough with these big innovation programs. Let's just find a better way every day. And that's what we try to do. We just try and take, you know, one more step forward to being a little bit more progressive. And so is it, you know, selling a, a brand belief document that kind of elevates the conversation? Then maybe it's that. Or is it establishing a new platform for a client to kind of go that? Because, you, you know, for what, I remember for one, of our, um, uh, for one of our clients, we said, oh, you know, you need a Twitter feed to kind of distribute this content. To you and I, that's two seconds. It's two seconds to create a Twitter account. It took a month. And the reason it took a month is because legal got involved and regulatory got involved and the SVP of marketing got involved. And uh, it's not that easy. So um, we just try and continue marching forward. So it's, it's interesting as you say that. And, and I know you and I, when, when we met recently, we, we talked a little bit about this, which is, you know, really getting a, a redefined, you know, role for the agency in the consumer's 
content strategy, right? Yeah. Or, or just in, in the marketing strategy more broadly. So how do you kind of, you know, view that in terms of, you know, one, how do you view your role? And second, you know, when you're going up against some of these more dinosaur modeled, um, you know, agencies, how do you, how do you kind of differentiate yourself and also not fall into their trap when that's pe what people want to spend on? Well, the first thing we do to differentiate ourselves is we, we, we don't show up in Porsches. <laughs> we, we try not to pull up to the client's office in a Porsche. That, that usually sends a nice message to, to the end client. Um, the, we try and um, uh, be really, really different. Um, one, we try and behave in a way uh, that a lot of consumer-facing businesses should be behaving. You know, we try and put honesty and transparency above all else. We try and be a good partner. We try and add value. We'll always say that we try to be the best partner at the table for both the other agencies as well as the clients so that we'll collaborate. We know that there's, uh, that big agencies have a, have a great role to play. And so do media agencies and PR agencies. And, and we try and kind of take care of what, what we do and, and collaborate the best we can with the other agencies. Um, in terms of, you know, how we're differentiating ourselves, um, you know, we're going in and and trying to redefine the relationship that people and brands have with content. And so it's really easy for the traditional agencies to go in and go, you just book an ad, you know, spend whatever, however many millions to book some TV spots and some banner ads and everything else. Um, we'll go in and look at what are consumers consuming? What are they, what are they looking for? Because the... the um, the end consumer, what, what the what the client is, who the, the who the client is competing against, they're not competing against their the other competitors in their category. They're competing against the internet. And you know, people used to vote with their wallets, and now they vote with their time. And if you can't win the battle for time, you're dead. You're dead in the water. I don't care how much you spent. I don't care where you spent it. If you're not better than the stuff that they have at their fingertips, you're dead. So you got to win the battle for time. So let's start there. Um, the second thing that we do is, you know, we're starting to make investments in traditional content that has no brand presence in it so that we can look at pure play content and know what's driving engagement without the benefit of, of, of having brand dollars in there and then applying that learning to branded uh, or brand-sponsored content. And so we're making some really interesting uh, investments in that area that traditional agents just don't, right? Because their ecosystem, they've got an assembly line of it gets briefed, it gets put to a creative team, they come up with a concept, uh, it gets presented, and then it gets produced and out the door, and then they're on to the next campaign. Uh, so we're just kind of redefining that entire process. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Well, Ron, I'm curious. Well, first, I think the question I'd like to ask is parlayed nicely from one of our sponsors who helps make this show happen, and that's Sigster. And for most of us in larger companies and even smaller companies, we send a ton of emails, and in those emails, we can actually be more effective in how we use our signatures. So I know for us, we would like to enable more people to find our content, to find our social channels. Well, Sixter can strategically enhance employee email to drive brand consistency and generate real marketing results every single time an email is sent. So you can customize signatures, you can deploy that across your team, and they have an ebook right now. It's free at bit.ly slash three creative ways. That's the number three, 
And it's three creative ways to unlock the power of email signatures. So they're doing a lot of great things around employee enablement at Sigster. And that leads to this question, Ryan. So you're working with lots and lots of companies, all have different needs. But one of the biggest problems I've found in content marketing is not only focusing on external audience and trying to build that audience, but growing awareness and creating that culture of content and helping others to see the value that content marketing is driving. So I'm curious, what are you seeing that's working to help build a better culture of content? Well, that, you, you know, you're bang on with that, um, that um, everybody else in the organization is kind of going, what are you guys doing over there? <laughs> you know, um, because it's tough to get an entire organization behind an initiative to start creating content opposed to just opposed to just sponsoring content. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, we find works really well is to get contributions from people from within an organization to the content. So if it's a, you know, if it's a B2B um, group looking for people to supply content that, or, or whether it's supplying end content or um, inspiration for us to create content for them. But uh, once you get people on, you know, it's my, my kind of my background as a stand-up comedian. How do you, how do you deal with the hecklers? You engage the hecklers. That's how you deal with them. And, and everybody, every organization has two types of hecklers. They have the, they have the active hecklers, which are the people who says, this, this sucks. I don't know why we're doing this. Um, and then there's the passive hecklers and the passive hecklers are the people, you know, in comedy who don't even know you're on stage. You know, they're not looking, they're not engaged at all. And they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're destroying your ideas in the hallway without you even knowing. So the only way to do that is to get everybody on side is to engage them. And, um, Either it's uh, sharing content internally within an organization um, uh, or it's going to those people and uh, and asking for their contributions to the to the content and then suddenly p people start to see uh, what's going on um, you know we did a um, a a Twitter party for one of our clients about two weeks ago around Diwali. And some people can go, well, who's doing this? This is ridiculous. Who's going to gather together on, on Twitter for a Twitter party? And so we took, uh, you know, the transcript of what we did and shared it. But we also looked at the numbers and said, oh, yeah, you know the traditional world of advertising? Okay, here. And this dorky little Twitter party, uh, we had 12 million impressions of that. And suddenly there, you know, it was like this a Scooby Doo moment where they were like, Whoa, you know, what, what? And we're like, yeah, that's you, you. Just because you don't do it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. So you just got to engage those hecklers. That's interesting. It's, uh, just thinking a bit more on uh, on that whole idea of, of using data, right? Um, you know, that's another thing that I think, you know, the the approach commonly with an agency has been to try and use data to you know, perhaps entice for, you know, another campaign to be done. But how do you, how do you play the role of, of using data more regularly with, with your clients when it's content based and when, you know, the results are maybe not going to be jumping out at you short term. It's a little bit more of a long term play. How do you, how do you balance that in, in the role of tight group? Yeah. You know, that's a great question because, um, one, I mean, the one thing that people don't talk about is that the data on the other side, the traditional advertising, sucks, right? Like, it really sucks. So, one, if people come on the content side looking for data, we go, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put our data up against the data you currently have, 
uh, 10 times out of 10 because the data you currently have sucks. So the second thing, though, is, uh, you know, did, did anybody in the world call that Gangnam Style was going to be the most watched video of all time? No. There's no way. Nobody saw that coming. And for some reason, it was. So one thing we try and talk to our clients is to say, look, it's the Wild West. No, anybody, any agency that comes in and tells you they know 100% what's going to pull and what's not going to pull is lying because nobody knows to, you know, with 100% uh, uh, proof that what content is going to drive what results. So with that in mind, since it's the Wild West, let's get in the process of producing content. Let's just start there. And once we start producing content, then let's start looking at the data and let's start making decisions um, based on what's working and what's not working. So our approach to data is simply pick a number and make it better because every client has their own metrics. Every client's read the, you know, one specific blog that they think one metric is better than others and they've brought a consultant in who identifies that metric. And we're, we're pretty open to looking at any metric. We just say, let's just make it better. Whatever it is, make it better. Um, now, that what's interesting, what we find is that agencies will say that to their clients and say, you know, let's just pick a number, we'll make it better, we'll produce content, the campaign will find its voice. But anytime the client comes forward with content suggestions, the agency goes, oh, you're stupid, what are you talking about? Um, you can't go to a client and go, the campaign will find its voice, let's look at the data and make it better. And then when they come up with a, with a suggestion, turn around and go, no, you're idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, we're not going to do that. We go, yeah, you wanna, do you want to do this particular video? Um, let's try it out and let's look at the data on it and see if it works or not. You know, what's great about the world of content right now is that there's never been a better time than right now to fail. Because if you fail, the cost of production was ridiculously low. And if you fail, it meant that only two people saw it. Very different from failing with a TV commercial five years ago when millions of people saw it and you sunk three million bucks into the creative and, and, the, and the media. Whereas now, Never been a better time to fail. Try more, fail more, and you'll get better over time. Right now, I'm a bit conflicted. There's a lot of great information there, and I really wanted to use building on Gangnam Style as my transition for a nice segue because I've never been <laughs> right. building on Gangnam Style. But you, you mentioned earlier, too, that your background in stand-up comedy, and, and then you were just hitting on failure, which is another key point. And you know, I'm just curious. I think a lot of the great examples of successful content, successful videos, there seems to be this underlying tone that just fits their personal style. And I'm wondering if, if maybe there's an element to that that you could touch on, because with a unique background like stand-up comedy, I think you probably have a very unique perspective on how people should communicate, how things should be delivered, how you have to carry yourself in front of people. I'm just curious if, if you've found any commonality across clients and successful content executions that has to do with personality or tone. Yeah, 100%. Um, personality, and we, you know, we, we call this new world we're living in, you know, the expression economy, and the expression economy is, you know, people's the desire to create and consume niche content, and that creates this battle for time where people vote with their, you know, people vote with their time opposed to their wallets. So in the expression economy, we think personality 100% wins because personality typically is viewed as being authentic. So if it is your authentic personality. Now, if you try to be something you're not, 
people smell that a mile away and you're dead in the water. But if you come forward with a really unique personality that is 100% ownable and completely yours, it makes you authentic. And what, is, what, is, what do people like about authenticity? It's trust. So that if you're stepping forward with your personality with all its imperfections and its flaws, because that's what normally defines our personality, is our imperfections and our flaws, or the things that are just slightly outside of the norm. And, and so if you're comfortable with those and you lead with those, people trust you. Now, we, we only have to look at, t at, at two things to see the effect of, of personality. Why is Donald Trump you know, leading or was at one point leading the Republican race in the U.S.? Well, there's a million different reasons. One reason, though, is that you would never tell somebody who was wanting to run for president to have hair like that. There's no way. You would never, ever tell them that. But because he's sitting there and he's very confident with who he is, he goes, hey, this is me, whether you like it or not. And that personality, some people trust that personality because he's being so open and transparent about who he is as a person. Now, the personality wins the battle for time. Time will tell whether or not he has the goods and, and the ideas that people want to hear. But in the first stage, it's personality, and he's winning the game. Those of us who live in the city of Toronto know that what was great about Rob Ford, why did people, some people like Rob Ford? Because it was his authentic personality that was so completely not traditionally what politicians say or do. And, um, you know, we on stage, it's the exact same thing, that you, you can't have a comedian on stage who uses industry buzzwords uh, to and, and, and jargon it just doesn't cut through at all. It has to be real and it has to be authentic. And that is 100% personality. Yeah, very cool. And it, it's, a, it's an interesting segue to, uh, you know, the personality that you've become. It obviously, you know, has, has brought you a ton of success, both with the tight group and, you know, this, the speaking engagements that you did. You know, one of the things we always like to do at the end of a Content Pros podcast is look back to people's childhood and where they want it to be. So maybe you can... Uh, Take us way back when, and, and where, where was your personality guiding you? Yeah, you know what's really funny is um, uh, when I was in high school in grade 11, I did a stand-up comedy routine for our uh, you know Christmas show with the high school kind of thing. And I, and I don't know why I did it. I just did it. I loved the craft of stand-up. I loved um, kind of the uh, the construction of a bit, the, the creation of a bit, the insight that went into great humor, and the performance aspects of the delivery. And it was this, you know, really interesting blend of insight to writing to performance that I thought was really cool. And I remember doing it for the, for the first time and having a room of five, you know, six hundred people laughing and thinking. If I could do this for the rest, like what could be better? You're, you're you're on an elevated platform, and you know hundreds of people are responding positively to what you're performing on stage. There's it's like crack, you know. It's it's really really addictive, and I thought I I could handle doing this for the rest of my life, and um and I, so I think now that the speaking stuff, or I stopped consciously selling myself as a comedian and more on uh, selling myself as a speaker who just happens to be funny. Um, the speaking is a version of stand-up comedy. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, it's just stand-up comedy with a message 
if you will. So yeah, that's that's something that uh, to my whole life I've always just loved the craft of stand-up. That's awesome, Ron. I think that's been pretty valuable for me, too, because I've always been very sarcastic and self-deprecating, and once you realize you don't have to be like the corporate presenters that you're trained to be, I think, you know, I kind of found that sweet spot, too, and, you know, I, I have that's what she said on my wedding band, which is really funny for folks who have seen the American version of The Office, but it didn't work as well in London, so I couldn't use it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's my intro slide, so that kind of killed my funny introduction. I had to, like, be serious and find other opportunities, but, you know, it works. Yeah, well, but, you know, you. That's, that's really interesting because, you know, you can have gold material. You know, every stand-up knows this, where you have you have gold material that is, you know, nine times out of ten is going to just deliver the laughs you want. The really painful part is the one time out of ten that it does, they just don't respond for whatever reason. And you, you almost you take that break to you know for the laugh and there's no laugh and there's just this dead silence. There's nothing more humbling than delivering a punchline that has delivered laughs every time and just and the time it doesn't deliver laughs. Very humbling experience. Yeah, I think that would have happened last week had I not known that you know London had the original office, the UK office, so that, and they didn't say that's what she said. So I pulled that out, but. But then again, I'm a big fan of awkward silence, so maybe you could spend that if, if something completely bombs, but <laughs> sure. yeah, hopefully I don't have to do that too much. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ryan. I, I learned a ton. I know Randy did as well. We appreciate you joining Content Pros. For everyone listening, if you'd like to join more episodes and listen to our show, it's contentprospodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you have a second, please give us a review. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining. On behalf of Oracle Marketing Cloud, I am Chris Moody. And on behalf of Uberflip, we've been joined by Randy Frisch. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Content Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentprospodcast.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Content Pros is sponsored by Oracle Marketing Cloud, Uberflip, and by Sixter and is produced by Convince and Convert Media. Find more great shows like Content Pros at marketingpodcast.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts. Podcast imaging by...